0: What is up, folks? It's the Emulsion Podcast, hosted by chef and media producer Justin Khanna. That's me. The Emulsion is a result of my desire to educate, share, and personally keep myself up to date on stories stirring up the restaurant industry. I also sit down and interview remarkable professionals that are making exciting moves in their own unique and creative ways. Fine dining, chef swaps, new gear, critiques, professional performance, balance, hospitality, as well as the occasional rabbit hole are all just a few of the topics we get into here. With the goal, of course, being that you take off your headphones or get out of your car feeling smart more inspired or more connected than when you pressed play whereas the long ad read you will not find that here because the growing gang of amazing folks on patreon make it possible for me to hit the publish button every single thursday and i'm eternally grateful for their support but more on that after the show there we go welcome to the show welcome to the show thank you for joining me it's a blust not blustery it's like a chilly crisp fall day in seattle today so I'm guy. I got the sweater on. Not the normal t-shirt weather for me today. Today's beverage is a reflection of me being frustrated that we we like opened a bottle of wine that I bought a case of uh, for a dinner I did on the other day yesterday and we like did it to just top up someone's glass and I think it was at the end of a dinner mistakenly and the rest of the team didn't end up drinking it and so it's like one of my favorite wines and it's not pricey but it's just like I think it's special and I like and I like it and I'm just a little bit like paranoid about cost so I wanted to uh partake in it while it's still delicious this is a uh Zweigelt from Johann Vineyards uh Minimus 2018 um from Indie Wines here in Washington. Really, really awesome importers. Awesome team there. Um, but that's today's beverage. I think this is... You can check it as one of the only times that I've had alcohol on this show, especially when it's just by myself. I think that's a, this is the only time since episode 100 where I'm consuming the juice. Just really juicy, light, kind of funky. Really, really like it. Um... Patreon supporters that are just super awesome and homies that support this show as well as a ton of the other content that I produce. We have David N. and Petro J. M. are those last two initials. Again, I really want to make sure that I'm not giving away sensitive information that people don't want stated, uh, even though I want to give you folks a shout out. Today's show is... I have how many tabs do I have open? I must have close to twenty tabs open. And I don't want to drone on for hours and hours and hours. So this is gonna be a little bit of a throwback to the format that we enjoyed on like the late eighties and nineties episodes where I do a little bit of a quick headline uh breakdown run through and then we'll go to into some, you know, more involved stories. But I might I might uh jump around a little bit. There might be some quickie news and then I might dive into a few topics and then we'll go back into quickie things if I feel like they don't really need to be elaborated on and I just want you to do your own research because a lot of these pieces either I've shared my thoughts on before or they're like things that I don't necessarily feel like I have fully fleshed out opinions on yet and part of me enjoying this show format so much is that I like getting into it with you folks either in DMs or on Twitter or in the comments on YouTube and then I can encourage my perspectives to grow a little bit and so some of these are just like hey people are talking about this thing or so and so a restaurant group did that thing what do we all think about it collectively because i think so much of this ends up being culture shifting it's not like one moment does it right it's like Something happens and then we all kind of like calibrate and like weigh in on our decisions and then another thing happens and we try to apply the perspective we gain from the first occurrence to see if it works to processing this new thing that just happened. And so it's always just evolving and I don't think that um, any of us are the same pe- people that we were 10 or 20 years ago. And so enough pontificating. Let's get into the news here. Um Pete Wells gave Peter Luger Steakhouse in New York zero stars. And that was a thing that people got semi-mad about, but also, like, a lot of people kind of applauded him. Uh, Quote, his first objection is to the quality of service. Quote, diners who walk in the door eager to hand over literal piles of money aren't greeted, they're processed. Wells writes, quote, management seems to go out of its way to make things inconvenient. And I think most of you know that Peter Luger... It's just a high-end, kind of grungy, like, steakhouse in Brooklyn, and they take cash only, and that's where the piles of money thing comes from. I want to say they had a Michelin star at one point in time. I think they still do. We're going to get into that in the next article. I'll fact-check myself on that. Quote, other restaurants and not just steakhouses can put a formidable crust on both sides of the cut. Luger caramelizes the top side only, while the underside is barely past raw, as if someone had done all its cooking on the hot platter. Other restaurants, and not just steakhouses, buy beef that is tender, richly marbled, and deeply flavorful. At Luger, you get the first two, but not the third. Other restaurants, not just steakhouses, age that beef to make flavor grow and intensify and double back on itself. Dry aging at Luger still results in a tender steak, but it rarely achieves a hypnotic or compelling or even a very interesting one. So he basically says that uh, the dry aging doesn't really lend to a flavorful cut, and he didn't really enjoy the service all that much. I think, and talking about the things that people were talking about on Twitter, What are people writing here? I look forward to a zero-star review from Pete Wells the way most people look forward to Christmas. But for real, Peter Luger is trash. This is a great day for society. Uh, I am very relieved to see Pete Wells confirm everything I've ever thought of Peter Luger. And this might be, you know, Grub Street cherry-picking the people that agreed with uh, Pete Wells. One New York institution takes down another New York institution. Peter Luger is so shady, I particularly don't like the part where they try really hard to not tell you the prices of any of the drinks. Wow, there's a lot of tweets. (laughs) Mm <laughs> hmm. My other opinion today is that Peter Luger is good. I have been a bunch of times in the past few years, and it is always a sort of debacle and always cost too much. But it's great for reasons I can't totally explain, much like New York City itself. And then, uh, yeah, they do include a few people that, uh, you know, defend. Uh, This guy had something bad to say. He's like, honestly, it's hard to trust a reviewer that ordered shrimp cocktail and a Caesar salad at Peter Luger. Any real food critic would know Luger's is known for tomato and onion salad, bacon, and steak. Nothing else on the menu ever should be ordered. The writer loses all credibility. But shouldn't they uh, evaluate the whole menu? That's a question. Let's see. The truth is, I doubt this will knock Peter Luger off of Japanese tour guides of Williamsburg, so the restaurant will be fine. Uh, people sharing their thoughts, much like I am on this show. I don't know. Do you folks have thoughts? I've never been to Peter Luger. I should have probably caveated this story with that. I haven't experienced it before. It's always been on a list. Like, I've always wanted to go, but I, I, I agree with the point that Wells says where he says there are other places in New York where you can get a good steak, and I think that that is more or less kind of my thoughts. Like, why would you not go to, like, for that price point? And again, this is me trying to like play that double-edged sword thing, right? Especially if, um, you're like momofuku co, you're gonna get a cut of beef or a dry-aged meat product. Whether it's like the duck that I had, or you know, insert any thing that is kind of lining the walls of that restaurant is probably gonna be a little bit more tasty than something that's just so like when you're operating that at that scale, unless you have the facilities to. Um, continue to stay on top of dry aging, given the option of closing the restaurant and saying we don't have beef that's ready, or opening the doors to the swaths of people that are going to just hand you cold hard cash, I feel like most people that are paying rent in Brooklyn are going to go for let's just open the doors and serve them some stuff that might not be up to par, which is unfortunate, but I feel like that's kind of the state of the debacle is when you get that popular it just takes time to dry-aged beef, and it takes space and staff and money and all that stuff, so it's just very interesting. We have a little bit of Michelin news that I want to dive into because since we've last spoken or since we've last done this show, Michelin in New York has come out, Michelin in Chicago has come out, and I have not yet to talk about either of them, and then there's a couple more, like things that have gone along with that like you know the supplemental articles that go along with those and I want to chat through those because I think that it's important as again very similar to that theme that I brought up in the beginning of the show we have these things that happen and then the next year the awards come out again and we kind of try to apply these lessons in quotes that we've learned from the previous year on this year and I'm, I'm always interested to see how that it all gets shaken out so big things that happen in New York Blue Hill at Stone Barns got two stars. They had one star previously. A restaurant that I had the pleasure of having a drink at the first time I went this summer, and then Anna and I had brunch when we went for like the weekend when we were in New York. Estella got a star. Crown Shy, a place that I've been wanting to try, but I I, I think I... What did I do? I think I either couldn't get a table the first time I went to New York, and the second time I went to New York, I really wanted to go... Where do we go? We went somewhere for dinner. That was like yeah. I went to Kawi. I went to Kawi instead of Crown Chai. That was the issue. So Estella, Crown Chai, and this place called Odo all got um stars this year. And the same three star spots are at the top, Chef's Table at Brooklyn Fair, EMP, Den, Massa per se. Um who lost stars this year? I'm sure there was a few. Um, pretty much the, sta- the, the the standard list that you would think uh, everybody's still on there for the most part that I can notice. Uh, moving on to Chicago, Alinea is still the only three-star place. Two-star places, there's only three, Acadia, Oriole, and Smith. Everybody, It's not everybody. I, I feel like a lot of people thought that Smith might get three stars this year. It did not. Spoiler alert. <clears throat> Excuse me. Um, the point that I wanted to bring up, well, I'll read this quote first. "Quote: Adding five one-star recipients to its coveted list of awarded restaurants, no new venues were elevated to two- or three-star status. Two restaurants, Ducex in Thalia Hall and the Alinea Group's Royster, lost their stars for 2020. So that's news. The biggest point that I wanted to chat through and something that a, f- a few of you folks chimed in on too was the fact that Next got a star this year, which was, and you again, you again too. So shout out to Mari. Congratulations. But Next, why now? I think that, that, that was a very interesting point to see Next get a star without any massive changes to the way that they structure their menus or the way that they... Like, they didn't go exclusively fine dining, right? And then all of a sudden, they get a Michelin star. They didn't uh, not decide to not do, um, like, food from other countries that's not, you know, old-school French or Spanish-tasting menus, right? I think that that is the interesting point to me. One of you, Zachary C., reached out and said... Quote, I always thought of Next as being a restaurant that shouldn't really ever receive a Michelin star. This isn't because the quality of the food is bad, but because of the nature of the restaurant. In my mind, Michelin has a focus on consistency that I think is naturally contradictory to the philosophy and ethos of Next. As each rendition of Next is essentially a new restaurant, I really do feel like the only way to appropriately judge Next would be if Michelin had disclosed when they ate at Next and what rendition of the restaurant it was then. Realistically, I've always felt that Next should belong in a category that specifically says they're criteria isn't appropriate for evaluating the restaurant and that's more of a little bit of a background for you folks too where yes they change the restaurant three or four times a year to different concepts and that has always been the hiccup right Phil Vittel from the Chicago Tribune always shares his two cents and does a review on the concept, whatever that concept happens to be. And we've seen that fluctuation where things will get four stars sometimes from the Chicago Tribune, and sometimes they won't. And so when you have that kind of ebb and flow, yes, the team at the restaurant might be the same, but because the food is changing and the... the, I mean, some, when I went for the... When did I go? I went for the Kyoto menu. It was so different than the um, El Bui menu I went to at Next. Like, El Bui should have gotten at least two Michelin stars, right? I thought it was an incredible place. I I didn't think it was three-star level, but I think that the Kyoto one would have been, like, maybe one star, right? So when when you have that kind of fluctuation, it's understandable why they would want to shy away from it. I'm just curious what changed in Michelin's mind, where they were like, maybe they see a more broad sense of consistency across the board, right? Where they see, oh, well, the standards are are so where we can confidently recommend that you give next a visit because it hits certain mile, like the quality of the ingredients they're sourcing is good regardless of the menu, right? So that won't change. And the professionalism of the service is above, you know, like wherever... Anything that wouldn't get one Michelin star would be, and so that kind of consistency, not necessarily from menu to menu, is what gives them the confidence to then give next to star. I just think I, I just think thought that was an interesting addition this year. I was of course excited that it happened because I just am such a fan of that concept. I'm I'm honestly shocked that more chefs haven't adopted that kind of a model. I think you know to think about. People being so eager to snatch up dish ideas and replicate them is eclipsed by this idea that most people won't copy that restaurant concept that changes every like a few times a year, like completely, like going from Spain to Italy to France in the way that they're cooking or honoring a certain chef in the way that they're doing right now with Jose Andres, which is very interesting. Um, I mean, I can. It's, it's such a no-brainer with chefs wanting to do pop-ups all the time. Why would you not pick a brick-and-mortar and then do different concepts out of that brick-and-mortar? I mean, there's a, I, I, I realize there's a few chefs that are doing it. I just think that to lean a little bit more into it and not have it be so grungy, I mean, Next does it in a way that's so buttoned up. I just think it's very interesting. Okay, Talking about fine dining, I know that the last solo episode that we did was very much so focused on defending fine dining, at least from my perspective, and giving you folks the information from the other side when you see these critics that are bashing it in the way that they're bashing it. And I thought that it was very interesting, and this is the third time that we're talking about Besher Rodell and her, you know, tour around the world to get the world's 30 best restaurants or however many that she did in partnership with travel and leisure and with food and wine travel and leisure together and she put out a piece called attica is the antidote to fine dining fatigue and when i you know did all those pieces in the last solo episode i saw this headline and i was like okay cool This is going to be great. We're going to dive deep into this, and there's going to be all these rebuttals that I can use to educate you folks on the other side of things, especially if you're just starting off. And then you kind of read the fine print on the article, and it gets a little bit shady. So above the headline on the article, it says, The Eater Guide to Melbourne. And then the subtext to the article is, How a Meal at Melbourne's Most Acclaimed Restaurant Restored One Critic's Faith in Fancy Food. And it's like this classic, well, it's this classic example of praising a restaurant. She's like, well, it stimulated childhood memories, and it gave me nostalgia, and the execution was beautiful, and I had flavor combinations I never had before. And then you start to... See, the sentence that she writes, quote, There's a whole industry built by PR firms and tourism agencies and willing influencers that hopes to obscure the gulf between the merely exclusive and the truly exceptional. I'm still not entirely sure I know the formula for spotting that difference. What I can tell you, though, is Attica is the latter. And if you come to Melbourne, you should eat there. So, And this is her rebuttal to saying, I also ate many meals that were expensive, presented with enough pomp to make me cringe and utterly lacking in pleasure. And this is talking about her experience in eating around the world. So then you scroll down in the article and right before the last paragraph, there's a photo of the dining room at Attica. And there's a little page thing. There's a little blip on the website, and it says, experience Melbourne for yourself. Eater is bringing this guide to life with a food-filled trip to Melbourne, brought to you by Black Tomato. Check out the itinerary and book your trip. And then you can click on Explore, and the text in the URL from Black Tomato is destination slash Australia slash Eater Journeys Melbourne slash Eater website, slash partnership, slash campaign, slash Eater journeys. And there's, you know, equals and ands in that URL. But that makes me think that this is a sponsored post. Like, this is Eater partnering with someone who is making either, you know, booking revenue from people getting recommendations on, oh, we should go visit Australia, we should go to Melbourne. And then you book through Black Tomato. Why would Eater publish this for free? And so I it's like, uh, I, and I don't, I don't have enough information to make like an accusation because I know that this show gets listened to by hundreds of people. And so I don't want this to be me making an accusation, but it's a little shady. Like to say, I don't know how you separate the two between people who are doing these expensive pompous tasting menus And then there's people who are doing truly exceptional food. And then you're writing for this publication that might directly be profiting off of your recommendation. It's very slimy. I don't exactly know. So like... She talks about these great dishes, like, one of them I, I, I even would love to do, like, some sort of a riff on. It was just such an inspiring take. It's like you dig, you get a bowl with tomato leaves, and you have to dig through the tomato leaves to find cherry tomatoes smeared in a paste of miso, and then you eat them, and it's like sweet tomatoes, salty miso, and then as you're bringing the tomato to your mouth, you have the scent of the tomato leaf, which is like, you know, most of us that have either... Pick tomatoes fresh from a garden or have gotten tomatoes where they're still on the vine or there's still like that leafy part connected to it. That, that, that is a memory, right? Like that's my grandparents house. And so she has this incredible praise to say about the tasting menu and the experience that she had. But then it's like, it's, and she's from Melbourne. I also didn't say that, which totally makes sense why she does all of this stuff for food and wine, travel and leisure and then she might get approached by Eater and says, hey, do you want to do this thing that might help out your hometown? And then she's incentivized to say yes, especially if she had a good meal there. I'm not saying I don't think she had a good meal there. I'm just saying like this back end stuff that's, that it's all about is very, like what are you doing? Especially with the headline, right? Like you're going to talk shit on all these other places, but then Attica is the antidote to fine dining fatigue. And then people want to click on it. It's just, it's a fascinating snapshot at the state of food media. And I want it to be on your radar so that you don't get duped. Because I'm willing to do this kind of like copying the URL and pasting it so I can see what the redirect looks like. And it's a partnership, it's a campaign. I don't know. I don't know. It's all very interesting. If any of you folks had ever had any inside knowledge, I'd appreciate the intel. I just don't like when people can be bought, you know? And I understand, like, people have... Like, these writers have to get paid, and you want to hook up your homies, but, like, it can become very convoluted, and I just want to put it on your radar so that you folks don't think that, oh, well, Attica's doing it right. Because they are, they, they are, and I haven't experienced this, so I don't know. Like, they might be a better tasting menu conceptually and giving you a sense of place and not copying dishes, right? But if it's getting praised because someone else has more to gain, that makes me angry. Quickie headline, you don't often see Santa Monica's most anticipated new restaurant. And I, you know, kind of have this thing that's pulling me back to LA. Like I want to go back to LA and experience more of it because it just seems like everybody keeps talking about how underrated it is and then without it getting a third a, a restaurant with 3 Michelin stars everyone just like leans into it more like it's super underground and underrated and like it it hasn't really been discovered yet. And so there's this restaurant called Onda from the people from Squirrel and it is open, I want to say. Yeah, it's open in Santa Monica now at the Proper Hotel. It's a 120 seat dining room. A wash with light colors and airy touches without bombarding the senses in pops of bright color or gilded detailing. And I just want to try it. I, I didn't get to go to Squirrel because I think we went to Jelina instead, which is a freaking phenomenal meal. And so, yeah, I'm just, like, adding something to your list. Um, that's getting a lot of great press right now from a great, it seems like, a great restaurant group. And I'm very excited to try it. It's, it's making its way onto my little map in my Google Maps of like places that I want to check out. So, Onda in Santa Monica. Okay. Uh, I think most of you probably have gotten this news. They're making a uh, documentary on Anthony Bourdain. It's going to be Focus Features, CNN Films, and HBO Max. And Morgan Neville, who did a partnership with David Chang on Ugly Delicious. And then he also did the Mr. Rogers biopic, Won't You Be My Neighbor? He says, quote, to, ha- to have the opportunity to tell his story is humbling. And he's just, it's going to be very interesting because there's so much footage of this man. You know what I mean? And so many people felt such a connection to him. And I think that he had connections, not just in food, but in other industries, whether it's music or politics or, you know, whatever. And I think to hear those people talk about having meals with him that didn't get captured on camera is going to be very interesting. And because there's so much footage, like, you could make a 10-hour documentary about him and not even scratch the surface, right? So I think that's going to be very interesting to see. I think most of you also probably saw the news that a lot of his stuff got auctioned off. Just news. I mean, I don't really have anything to say about it. Um, I mean, something had to happen with it, right? And so if it's going to go towards a good cause and there's value in it when, where people want to purchase and then honor his stuff through preserving it, I don't think that there's anything bad about that. I think, of course, any single time that that happens where things are being sold, people get a little bit, you know, whatever about it. I don't really have anything negative to say about it. Is I just kind of wanted to let you folks know that, like, a bunch of Anthony Bourdain's stuff was sold at auction. So, okay. Very interesting piece. And again, we're bringing up this gentleman again, John Bonet. He did a piece for Fortune. And the title, like a schmuck, I clicked on it. It's called Why the Bib Gourmands are the Michelin Awards you should actually care about. And this might seem like I'm reading a lot of this article, but I think that a lot of it needs to be said from his perspective because I have a a rebuttal to say on a lot of it. I don't think this is going to get to, like, Ryan Sutton rant level, but I think that there is a perspective that this gentleman takes, and I think I just want to caution a lot of you for it. Quote, In truth, the more useful Michelin results had already been out for a while. And this is in discussion of... You know, the bib gourmands get released, and then the week later, or a month later, the stars get released. Quote, often bibs are portrayed as consolation prizes for restaurants whose aesthetics fall outside the narrow band that Michelin defines as worthy, end quote. I think that was very interesting. In fact, the bibs are the farthest thing from that. They are, arguably, the only part of Michelin's system that is still worth paying attention to. Certainly, they're the only part that in any way addresses how and where most of us actually eat today. Stars may get the attention, but they're a benchmark whose time has passed. End quote. And then he says, quote, in other words, Michelin spends a lot of time and money compiling lists of some of the most compelling cooking in America and around the world and then pushes it off to second class status. In doing so, Michelin has underscored its own relevance. Okay. Quote, in 2019, its three-star restaurants and many two-stars can't break out of a very narrow vision of dining, excruciatingly fancy, very expensive, and almost inevitably French-inspired. In Manhattan, that includes places like EMP, Le Bernardin, and Per Se, the last of which was demoted in recent years by nearly every critic but Michelin. Dining at 11 Madison Park may be the sort of experience that's, quote, worth a special journey, to use Michelin in the words, although these days that journey is more likely to be by private jet... It's, but it's not a journey many New Yorkers feel the need to make across town. Such restaurants reside in a different universe from how most of us eat. End quote. Uh, this goes back, and I, I'm sorry if I'm beating a dead horse right now, but it's, not, it's just not for you, right? Like, high-end fine dining Michelin might just not be for you, and that's okay. Yes, there are more Bib Gourmand restaurants because... It's more accessible food. Like, it's casual food that's designed to make a little bit more money. It's not designed to be creative or ambitious or boundary-pushing. And that's okay. They want a place in the community to serve people. Moving on. Quote, that Michelin isn't fixing a flawed system shouldn't at all detract from the enormous accomplishment of the chefs who earn those stars. They work extraordinarily hard and deserve the praise, but they also know what's expected of them. To indulge Michelin's obsession with formality, one that reeks of the old brigade system for restaurants that Escoffier was perfecting around the time that Michelin started its guys in 1900, that old French way wasn't about celebrity. It was about escaping the indentured servitude of the old restaurant kitchens. So why should we celebrate that today? Why shouldn't we be praising chefs and staffs who want to create restaurants that meet their definition of hospitality? The bibs do just that, of course. And that's where I'm kind of confused. It's like, it's a French, it's it's a guide with French origins and you're mad that they're praising restaurants with French threads throughout them. It's just very interesting to me that, there's like a confusion of that where there's like such history and and like there's no there's no doubt that there's like bad culture things that go along with these kinds of things but when you think of incredible hospitality it's difficult for me to think of a dining culture that embodies luxury and opulence more so than the French. And I think that there, it's funny that there are places that get Michelin stars a la Atomix and Chef's Table at Brooklyn Fair, which are basically Kaiseki counters, right? But they're almost this interesting fusion project where you get a little bit of both. Quote, the only alternative then is for chefs and we media enablers to stop playing along what if we behaved like the Parisians and just paid attention to more relevant critics while treating Michelin as the slightly worn and inappropriate country uncle it seems to want to be? End quote. I think it's just a very fascinating place to be where this is the first, you know, these kind of 36 months that we've experienced with chefs giving back their Michelin stars and critics pushing back to Michelin, is one of the first times that I can remember where there's been this pushback because Michelin doesn't own the media anymore, right? You don't often read about who got the Michelin stars from your newspaper or getting a little red book. You read about it on Twitter. And so if, you know, a publication like Fortune or Eater gets to it first and gives you that news, then they have to give their two cents on it or create their own industry awards right i just think that even seeing like it's hard to dethrone a a titan like michelin because even them even they are asking for help financially from things like the board of tourism of california right like it's not a cheap project to execute a restaurant guide like this and i just think it's interesting that it's not often met like Everybody's constantly like bring it like bring it down, bring it down, bring it down. It all needs to be more accessible. And I understand coming from the reference of the culture needs to be better, people need to get paid more, any of these productive conversations, but saying that you're mad that someone's sharing their opinion is also like saying that they should only listen to your opinion, right? I just think I would love to hear your folks' thoughts on this one because I do honor Bib Gourmand restaurants in a different way, I would argue, right? I met someone at a dinner that I cooked the other night who told me that uh, anniversary meals allowed them to go to three stars, birthdays were two stars, and just wanting to go for fun for a night out was a one-star place. And that's how they categorized Michelin in their mind. Or it's like, it's about celebration. It's about being inspired or being shown something with food you've never seen before. It's not something that you go to every day. And I think most of us agree with that. I just think that this guy is like eating his own tail with his words. He's like telling us stuff that we like Everybody already knows that Bib Gourmand is like staple of the community. You go there a couple times a month. It's a little bit more affordable, so you can afford to go there. And it's not a four-hour-long tasting menu. But that doesn't mean that the four-hour-long tasting menu is bad. We already know, dude. Flipping it all to someone who doesn't want to do restaurants at all, there's a woman out of L.A., Zoe... Comarin, she does a pop-up concept called Zoe Food Party in in a backyard behind Highland Park's Collage Coffee, and she dresses like she's from the 90s and serves pita, and she just did a quick interview with Eater talking about why she doesn't want to have a restaurant, why she's okay doing pop-ups. And I think it's interesting that she talks about doing pop-ups and then getting burnt out about with doing pop-ups. And then she says, we'd we been doing pop-up dinner parties in New York and Berlin, but after a year I was exhausted. I wasn't feeling the fun. And then she came up with this idea of Zoe Food Party where she says, quote, I don't want to be locked under the details and minutia of the business. Kitchens are five alarm fires all day, every day. In my case, not to sound ego-driven, but why I really love what I really love about what I do is linked to my feeling as an artist. The Pita Parties are mini collections that take on a life of their own. The restaurant framework abuses people's lives. Their backs hurt, their hips hurt. That can be great, but if you are a food person and you love cooking slash feeding people, we have to invent new spaces. And then the eater asks what do you envision for Zoe Food Party? And she says, quote, I'd love to lead workshops and gatherings where we maybe talk about food history. That's something I'm working on as well as some collaborations. In a dream world, Zoe Food Party might be a space, but it's not a restaurant. I keep things improvisational and I'm more comfortable growing a network where people tell me what they need. If there were a long-term plan, there might be the evolution of a space that might incorporate everything from a pop-up vibe to a CSA to a small production space, but it's not a restaurant. It could be anything really, end quote. And this is a surprise and uh, uh, something I wanted to cover beca- selfishly, right, because it's where my head is, where I see things like Next doing really well, and then I see things like this where it's just about fun and about entertaining, and it's about feeding people food because you're excited about feeding people food, not because you want to pander to anyone's expectations or do things for the award's sake. That I hope everybody see my uh, Ego is the Enemy video that's on YouTube, but it just provided a little bit of validation where like, I'm not the only one that's thinking about food in this way and kind of like shifting the model. And again, so much of this show is for you, especially if you're early on in your career to let you know that people are doing things in a different way. And I think that, um, one thing that I wanted to caveat all this Michelin news from is, is I'm not defending fine dining because I think that it's the end-all, be-all of high-end gastronomy. I mean, even though that's kind of like the definition of what I just said. I don't think that the Michelin fine-dining restaurant as we know it today, and we see, you know, different versions of around the world, is the pinnacle of cuisine and cooking. But what I do think is that when we talk on this show and my channel about ways to progress yourself as a chef and improve your career there are certain avenues you can take and certain experiences you can draw from to get better and improve your skills and make yourself more adaptable or faster or a better team player any of these things and because we're just getting to see places that are consistently doing things that aren't restaurants in the traditional sense, they are the most concrete recommendation I can give at scale, you know, with the platform that I have to how you can progress. Because if I'm not going to recommend culinary school, and I don't necessarily think that these people that are doing career-long pop-ups is stable enough, I have to give you an alternative and that's why I defend fine dining the way that I defend it because I still think that to get your skills honed and to learn the rock solid foundation that's going to prepare you to do something like what Zoe's doing, restaurants is still the best way to get those skills and that's the route that I took and that's what has led me to being able to be you know what is effectively a culinary director in a business and so this is all to kind of give you a sense that there is more out there and there is more to do i would caution you from doing it from day one like are you going to learn all the things you need to learn about food from going and working at zoe's pop-up parties zoe's food parties I don't know. You might learn a lot about thinking outside the box and being scrappy and, you know, doing all these things. But then when it comes to doing your own thing, you're only going to know what you learn from her, right, if you spend five years there. I would argue if you spent five years at a fine dining Michelin restaurant, you're going to learn what it's like to work with people with tempers. You're going to learn what it is like to work with uh, picky purveyors. You're going to learn guest expectations, and you're probably not going to be getting paid that much, so you're going to be doing it for other reasons other than financial gain. There's just so much to unpack there. can be a whole whole separate podcast episode. But I wanted to kind of like clarify those things where you think you don't see me talking good things about pop-up restaurants. I'm always so uh, conscious of how advice gets interpreted, right? And so I might be giving the advice of, well, it's really cool to do pop-up concepts like this or look for spaces where you're not doing a traditional restaurant. And if you're at my stage where you're like sous chef level, right, or if you are just coming off of being the executive chef or an owner at a restaurant and you're like, well, that didn't go very well, this can give you another outlet and you can see like, oh, well, there are people who are doing doing it different and they're actually happier and more successful with it. But then I get fearful if, you know, you're on week three of culinary school and I'm saying these things, I don't want you to turn down an opportunity to go work in an established place that has some structure because you think that it's cool now to just do pop-ups. You know what I mean? So that's where I'm going on it, and I really want to, like, get better at giving that clarity because context is so important. Context is key. An interesting piece from Phil Vittel from the Chicago Tribune – about this restaurant called Claudia. And it's from Chef Trevor Teek Teach T-E-I-C-H. And what I thought was interesting about the Kickstarter, we've talked about Kickstarting restaurants before on this show, but I thought what was very interesting was the dollar amount, the amount of backers, and then the pledges that happened so most the most backers the most the the thing that most people backed was um this large box of Petit fours, which was fifty dollars and there was twenty three people that backed that overall they had thirty eight thousand dollars that got pledged and it was 109 backers. So if you do that math, it's like just shy of $400 per person. And I think that to see that happen. Okay, moving on. So we have a piece from Phil Vitel in the Chicago Tribune where he discusses the fact that the fine dining restaurant, Claudia will open in the West loop after having a successful Kickstarter campaign. And we've talked about Kickstarter restaurants on the show before, How they get executed, and I kind of wanted to just dig into a little bit of the nitty gritty on this because it's not something we see all that often. But digging into the numbers from my perspective, it was very interesting to see how they structured their, um, you know, the bonuses that they gave to people that gave them money. So the rest, the chef's name is Trevor Teich, T e i c h is his last name. They want to do a ten course tasting menu plus a lots of extra surprises. Standard, kind of modern American fine dining restaurant. But when you dig into their Kickstarter page, they raised $38,000, just over that, with 109 backers. So when you do the math on that, it was you know just shy of $400 per person on what people pledged. And the thing that most people pledged was $50 for a large box of Petit Fours with recipes. And what I think is very interesting about this is that a lot of the things were experience-focused, right? And so they were, you know, table for two, kitchen table experience, uh, dinner for four, uh, your name on the wall of support if you spend $1,000 or more, and only two people got that, um, private dinner for 10, private dinner for 16. And so when you do the math on this, right, so you have... Um, you do 10 course tasting menu. So $5,000 divided by 16, that's $312 and 15 cents. How much of that actually goes towards the restaurant? Like actually funding the restaurant? Like, yes, you get this $38,000 boost, but then you have a table of 10 come in and that takes your staff and your food costs. And you know, that prevents that room from getting booked for somebody else. And it, kind of seems like they just sold 100 pre-sale tickets. Do you know what I mean? Where it's like the tasting menu at the restaurant was like 185 a person, I want to say. And so for them to kind of just like double that cost and do some pre-sales where most people are just going to come into the restaurant and say like, here you go, I paid for this already. It's kind of an interesting way to think about it because it's like, yes, that might give you the stuff to get up off the ground and then you kind of have people coming in and documenting their experience. I mean, maybe it's a genius way to do it. I don't know. I just never seen it done in this way where it almost feels like you're getting the resources to almost get it open. You know what I mean? Like the run rate of a place that has, I mean, how many seats is this going to have? The restaurant will seat 25 to 30, so we give can give each of our guests an attentive, unique experience. Um. They, need to, they needed to do a full overhaul of the restrooms, redoing the floors, fixing the ceiling, purchasing tables and chairs, a fresh coat of paint, energy-efficient lighting. And so they're kind of like wanting to pay for this by giving guests experiences that they already pay for. And so like when you do that math, right, it's $370 for dinner for two divided by two. It's exactly the price of the tasting menu. So it's like be one of the first to book. And so to me... A a Kickstarter should be like you're charging Either a discount of something so that you can get things at cost so that you can like Almost you can make some sort of profit, but this is not this is not even giving a discount This is you know literally pre-sale of exactly what the menu is going to cost So I think the way that they priced it was very interesting to me And I don't know maybe this is enough money for them to get all the things done But then if they take a revenue hit once they open because the only people that are coming is like the people that redeemed things it's going to be interesting so I wanted to kind of put that on your radar because it did mean it's $30,000 goal and the last one I want to say didn't make their goal or they were like not even going to be close to it and so it's just interesting for me to see and why I wanted to kind of cover it here Hopefully this is a quickie story because we don't talk a lot about politics and we don't talk a lot, of, a, a lot about um, the current presidential administration that's happening here in the U.S. But something that's directly going to affect probably, arguably, a lot of you is the fact that Trump has imposed some tariffs on some international products, specifically from the EU. And a lot of this is, um, quote, The new tariff system from a 15-year-old case that concluded earlier this month when the World Trade Organization ruled that the U.S. could attempt to recoup damages of $7.5 billion stemming from what it called an unfair state of subsidies given to airplane manufacturer Airbus by the EU. And so what's happening is we're seeing a 25% tariff on single malt whiskeys from Scotland and Ireland. Uh, I'm trying to only discuss the food things here. Dairy products, including butter, yogurt, and cheese, including Parmesan. Fruit, including fresh fruit, dried fruit, and fruit juice. Wine from France, Germany, Spain, and the UK. Note I said France. Yes. Pork, including prepared or preserved pork. Olives and olive oil from France, Germany, Spain, and the UK. There's no Italy mentioned there. Uh, Decaf, coffee, and normal coffee from Germany. Metal tools, including pneumatic hand tools from Germany. Books from Germany and the UK. Biscuits, waffles, and wafers from Germany and the UK. Anyways, the UK is scheduled to leave the EU on October 31st, but because each country is named individually, the trade's representatives notice the tariffs will continue to apply. So, you know, if you see a... More of this is just like, if you see the menu prices at your place change or you see that your chef started to use a different cheese, or if you see that the wine pairing changed because of certain reasons, or you notice that a customer says that the price of their favorite dish has changed because you don't make the rules and how things get priced, just understand that this comes because your restaurant is probably paying more for these ingredients. So I just kind of wanted to put that on your radar. Didn't have too much more to dig into there and why. Um... I wanted to give a—so Naomi Tomkey, who is a writer based out of Seattle here, gave a little bit of a shout-out to a friend of mine in a piece that she did. So the friend of mine is uh, Tiffany Ran, and she and I talked very early on when I was doing um, pop-ups in my, you know, initial year in Seattle. She's doing her own pop-up series called Baba Liao, um, which is Infusing Pacific Northwest Ingredients into Taiwanese Cuisine. And the piece that was written that included her was called, quote, The Unreasonable Length r- Lengths Restaurant Workers Have to Go to Take Time Off. And then it says, From working doubles in advance to finding their own replacements, here's how unsalaried shift workers manage when it comes to vacation. And this is kind of just sharing the stories. I think this is more valuable for someone who is thinking about getting into the industry and you've found my show from whatever avenue you found it, and you're wanting to learn a little bit more about what it takes to work in restaurants, I think that this isn't going to be anything new for people who are used to this life. But, um, yeah, it just tells the very real realities of what it takes to take time off. And I think that it's a a good piece that's very transparent. It's very, like, from an industry perspective. And if you want to read it and you want to kind of, you know, like maybe get a sense of like, well, I'm not crazy. This is how most of the industry operates. Uh, You should read it. It's linked down low in the show notes. An interesting piece that I, you know, a lot of restaurants will have things like um, core values, or I mean, certainly a lot of the restaurants I grew up in had, you know, specific words that they would Use And and my company does the same thing where we have these words. Some of them are, you know, like phrases or like a combination of words or like things that we like to talk about to articulate to people, whether it's our clients or our staff, why it is we do what we do and what we're about and what we believe in and how our actions map to that. And I understand that some people hear words like honesty or integrity or trust or any of these things that can frequently become buzzwords, and it doesn't connect with them. And so this piece came out called, In Hospitality, Your Words Need to Be as Good as Your Food. And this is in you know, response to the Welcome Conference, which is more or less the kind of the TED Talk of Front of House in Restaurants that was started by, um, who is it, Anthony? Oh, Will Godara and Anthony Rudolph. And they took it from New York to Chicago in this past year, and they had um, Kevin Boehm. Am I pronouncing that last name correctly? Where's his name? B-O-E-H-M, Boehm, And he's from the Boca Group. And they talk about that he puts a lot of these things into phrases. And I wanted to share them with you because I thought that some of them might, you know, become things that you folks start to operate your decisions by. So when you come into a conflict or a fork in the road or you're dealing with, you know, a particularly testy situation you can think about any of these quotes and you can be like okay that really resonates with me and i want to adopt that as kind of like my operating system right i want to use that you know little thing and embed it into my software to run it whenever i come into contact with one of these situations so here we go quote positive positivity is contagious be a carrier of happiness happiness is an active pursuit will it to happen Every difficult conversation needs a countermeasure. Balance the negative with the positive. Don't just give a guest a great experience. Develop a relationship. Don't ask people how they are doing with a period. Ask it with a question mark. That one's very interesting. Execution eats strategy for breakfast. That's a good one. Inspect what you expect. I like that one. Remember that it's all of the small pixels that make the beautiful picture. It's a very digital way to say that. See the problem. Solve the problem. Teach the solution. That's an interesting one. Believe in magic. Uh, Look for soul and character in others. Build things that are soulful. Be a character. Constantly take stock in where you have been, where you are, and where you want to be. And some of you might have rolled your eyes at a few of those. They might have been, you know, too hoity-toity or like they didn't you know, you can see how they can get taken out of context or, you know, not taken seriously in one whatever capacity. But I know that there are some times when It's just the right moment and the lesson hits or this is something that you can tell any individual on your team if you want to, you know, click a a few 30 seconds back in the podcast and listen to these again. And maybe one of these will, you know, you're having a mentorship moment with someone on your team or maybe you need to tell one of these to your teammates, right? Uh, And it's really going to make sense and click for somebody. I think that that's very important where, you know, you can hear something 50 times from one perspective but you hear it said in a different way and it actually hits home for you and then you're like oh i get it now or like now that you said it like that it actually makes sense so that's very interesting to me i think probably my favorite is execution eat strategy for breakfast that's a really good one and then also see the problem solve the problem teach the solution that's a very good one anyways wanted to share those with you folks because they're just Fun quips to say sometimes. Okay, I think it was Spencer Venancio was concerned that I had not uh, talked about this yet. Uh, Grace, Grace's sequel. And this piece came out June 24th. I don't know why I didn't cover it all those months ago. But yes, Curtis Duffy is working on another project. Again, with Michael Muser, Sons, Mike Olzelski, who was their investor and real estate developer. It's called Ever. They're going to stay in Chicago. They're going to stay in the West Loop, but they're trying to outdo themselves again. Quote, Design features, according to the Times, included a narrow hallway that Muser called a decompressant chamber. While waiting for their tables, visitors could grab little snacks like dried yuzu rind and cotton candy clouds that hang from the ceiling. And actually, I want to fact-check myself on that real quick, because I was going to say something bad about that. Um, Because it sounds very similar to something that they did in Grace. Design, features. Yeah, this is so... Okay, let me get this context right. So they say the dining room will seat 75 people with a private space for 12. Lawton Stanley Architects, the same firm that designed Grace, will work on Evers' 6,000-square-foot space. And yeah, then it talks about design features. So Grace had a similar hallway, which I think is interesting that they're continuing to latch on to this idea. We didn't do snacks in that hallway In the same way, the first snacks that most people got were either in the lounge in the front area of the restaurant or on the table when they first sat down. And so I think that this is kind of like resurfacing this old idea that they've already kind of executed on. They just didn't take full advantage of it in grace. It says, quote, dinner will cost $300 to $500, according to the New York Times. On the high end of the range, Ever would surpass Alenia as Chicago's most expensive restaurant. The dining room, and again, the dining room will seat 75 people. Quote, Cook County court records show that. The case doesn't appear to be active, but Olszewski claimed Duffy took $10,000 in truffles and made other allegations. Duffy and Muser, via a spokesperson, said they were never served with court papers. There's also a lawsuit with Grace's unemployment benefits, according to the Times. That lawsuit was filed in August 2018, according to county records. And it's just very interesting to me to see all this transpiring because it's not from from the lens of... Self-expression, it's not coming from the lens of wanting to say something with your food. It's not wanting to create a place to highlight producers or um, be a force in the community or any of that stuff. It just seems like they're building a machine to feed these massive egos. And I feel like I can say that as someone who has worked with these people and who has experienced what happened when they basically got everything that they wanted. Right? Where they got the $100,000 investment into buying serviceware. They got the chairs that they wanted that this article still talks about right and they got all of these things and they were so frustrated that they couldn't move things fast enough through avenues because it was connected to the hotel and they had to get budgets approved and all these things and they got what they wanted they got the documentary they got their three michelin stars but it wasn't enough you know and this is so much of what gets talked about in in ego is the enemy where it's like You have these, you're in one of three camps, right? You're either working your way up, you're on the way down, or you're experiencing the success. And I think that this is just a fascinating thing to watch from afar of a chef who is obviously incredibly troubled. Like we, it's documented and not just in the documentary, but the article that was written about him and his family trauma that happened and then you get met with you know someone who you bring on as an investor and won't leave like they won't give you the majority ownership in the in the in the company and it's just crazy to see that The format's going to be the same, 12 to 15 course tasting menus. One is on seafood and light proteins, and the other one's on vegetables. It's just like, we're copying and pasting Grace, but we're going to make it more expensive, which therefore makes it better. It's just fascinating to watch. And I'm very grateful that I am not a part of that world anymore. I don't want to discourage any of you from working for Grace. I mean, maybe I would, because there doesn't seem... I mean... (laughs) Yes, he might have learned his lesson, and he might have people on his side that are telling him to not make these decisions, and we're not going to – I mean, I just remember Curtis Duffy standing in that board – in our private dining room telling the entire staff that he had no idea that we weren't getting paid overtime. And it was so hard for me as a 20-year-old to wrap my head around, like, you're the chef owner. How do you not know – like, you have 20 people that you have to pay. It's not a 2,000-person company. Like, How do you not know what your team is getting paid? And so I, I'm taking that as like maybe he truly didn't know and maybe he's going into this project saying I'm going to be a better businessman in this business and because you know they're, they're just taking sound bites from a quick phone call they hopped on with him that wasn't fully articulated. And again, this is me after getting totally bashed by working for this guy. I'm still wanting to look at it as half full. And so I truly wish them the best of the best in the realm of I hope that they get happiness for doing it for the right reasons. Because if that's going to be the thing that motivates them, it's going to continue to crash and burn. And it's going to be awful. And I'm, I feel bad. I truly feel bad. Because this is coming from someone who truly respects the talent that is Curtis Duffy. Like he's such a talented person as a chef slash artist. His food is beautiful. The way he plates and thinks about how he's going to lay out food aesthetically is like amazing. And he's done enough food where the flavor profiles can really hit. Sometimes he grasps at things that aren't delicious just because they're different. And I think that all of us are guilty of that sometimes, but I wanted to cover it and I wanted to put it on your radar because It's kind of an ambitious thing to see a chef do this. And I think that to put yourself out there like that is something that few of us will ever get to do. And so there's things to be learned from that. And so I want, you know, to put that on your radar. All right. Next article is from Jen Ag, who we've covered her work before. She wrote an article in the Global... And The Globe and Mail, called Why Bar and Restaurant Lists Are Useless. Written by bros, they honor bros, end quote. And so there's a few... This centers around a larger piece of news that came out, and I'm happy that I can include it in this context, because this is an opinion piece, so take that with a grain of salt. And I think I watched part of this movie, like, while I was editing a video on a plane, and so I didn't hear the full context of it. But there's this movie about bars in the same way that, you know, someone would document their experience eating through Paris. It follows this guy, Charles Schumann, quote, who is an octogenarian bartender-owner of Schumann's Bar, much lauded in Munich. And the story is he was given the World's 50 Best Bars Industry Icon Award this week, last week. And women of the industry were swift to respond with extreme outrage. Quote, "Mr. Schumann is well known not for his skill or charm, but for being openly sexist. He has said things such as "A bar is no place for a woman. Important characters are always men and other fun nuggets, including, quote, "There's no place for a woman behind the bar after 3 pm." He goes on to suggest that women are there to warm up the crowd for the real, and then in parentheses, male bartenders. These statements, which he has doubled down on over the years, are clearly and obviously dismissive at best, deeply misogynistic at worst, end quote. And maybe I should also bring up this thing that I put out on Twitter where I'm sure most of you saw Heston Blumenthal, the chef of Fat Duck in the UK, he said some very similar things about females. What did I write on Twitter? Let's look it up here because I don't want to misquote it. And I also don't think it needs that much talking about because I think most of you know kind of where I stand on these things. But I, you know, got to keep it got to keep it real when I see people screwing up just as a lesson for you folks to see what did Heston say. What did Heston say? uh, Molecular gastronomy enthusiast Heston Blumenthal thinks biological clocks and heavy pans impede women's progress in restaurant kitchens. And that's from Eater London. And you can look at all these things on my Twitter or in the show notes. But yeah, guys, like, just just don't be stupid. That's as much as I can, you know, share. I mean, I know that It's increasingly difficult to tiptoe around some of these things because biologically and biologically there are differences, but that doesn't always translate and can't translate into speaking about someone from their work capacity. And even I'm trying to tiptoe around it, right? Like I'm trying to like articulate this in a way where I'm trying to give advice. It's just like you can't say those things. There's no place for a woman behind the bar after 3 p.m. It's not, it's not real, right? Like you see people who are females running fine dining kitchens. So it's like whatever statement that you're going to try to make where it can't be done, just got debunked. Chefs that are cooking Korean food can't have Michelin stars. And then someone does it. You know what I mean? And then it just gets debunked. It's just like, it might be harder, right? Like, it might be more difficult, but it does not mean that it should not happen. And that you should... Put out this rhetoric that says that it's bad for these things to happen. "Quote an impassioned statement that has been shared many times." Ivy Mix, co-owner of Leyenda in Brooklyn and co-founder of Speed Rack, a cocktail competition for women, made this very reasonable ask: "Quote to stand with women, please remove all acknowledgement of these wins across your brand platforms." And this is talking about the world's fifty best bars. Awards. So basically asking people in the industry, if this award um, company gave you any recognition, remove the acknowledgement as kind of the, you know, like boycott, blah, blah, blah. And no one did it, which is, you know, it's a statement. This Schumann guy says, quote, in light of the controversy surrounding my person and the awarding of the World's 50 Best Bars Industry Icon Award 2019, I am hereby returning the award. I don't want it anymore. And the author of this piece says, of course, this isn't an apology. It's a grown man acting like a baby as though he's the victim. Nobody liked that. So a full 24 hours later, he released a heavily scripted statement that still gets apologizing all wrong quote I am truly sorry that my statements were misleading and insulting to members of our bar community I hereby apologize to them but I also ask for an open dialogue so that these misinterpretations can be eliminated end quote and I think that that is similar to a story that we discussed a few weeks ago where it's like a lot of these people that will write about people that say these things don't they off they say that nothing is ever good enough, like you're never gonna be forgiven. This is like you're you're banished, you're canceled like cancel culture, right and I think that that is also just as harmful, maybe not just as harmful, but like you're fighting fire with fire, an eye for an eye makes the whole world blind, right, and so I think that um. Articulating what that path to redemption looks like can be helpful, but I also understand that, you know, you and I might have grown up in a generation where it was common to see more female representation or people of color representation, and so it's hard for us to understand these people who look at the world in a different way from us, and so we don't know what's going through this man's head, he just has how he was brought up in the industry and what he thinks. So just keep take that with a grain of salt. Quote, The only way to have better representation on the front lines of these lists is to have better representation on the back of them. The James Beard Award Foundation recently did a complete overhaul, and the results were pretty immediate. Women and people of color finally started to be recognized after decades of being passed over. End quote. I don't know what I think with this story. I think that it's someone who is very opinionated on this topic sharing their thoughts um do they honor bros sometimes yes is there still a culture of male representation that might be a toxic boys club culture that this person talks about and it runs deep yes but that's in that word you tell us where the issue is It's culture, and culture is slow to change. Seth Godin talks about that a lot. Um, And I want to cover it because I do think it's important that we discuss it and we see why it's bad. We see why it's bad, and then that gives us the opportunity to improve instead of brushing it under the rug, and we'll deal with it later. Anyways. Probably the story that I want your folks' opinion on the most in this is a very interesting piece from Jonathan Kaufman through Eater, and it's called Whose Dish Is It Anyway? And I wanted to give you both sides of this story because as a business owner and as someone who has, you know, contributed towards ideas that another chef has used on a menu that was 100% their name, I have varying thoughts And I want to hear your thoughts because it's very muddy and it can get very slimy and it can get very ego driven. And so let's start by you can read the full article if you want, and then you can come back to this. But I'm wanting to give you examples from both sides. So I want to give you some examples first that defend the restaurants. So Vartan Abgarian, the chef and... co-owner of yours truly in los angeles which opened in march says that when he moved on from his last job at 71 and above he had no regrets about leaving behind customer favorites like poached oysters topped with uni and caviar and a cured and whipped egg served over chorizo bolognese quote i was a person who was hired to do a creative job i got paid for that work it belongs to them end quote and then we're going to talk about this company called butcher and Bee where one of the chefs, one of the owners there wrote in an email, my position and the restaurant's position is that if a team member develops something while working for us, they can take that thing and generate success for themselves with it being a more be it a more senior or exciting role with a different company or to create their own business. We do not try to stop them or stand in their way. And then the last point that kind of defends restaurants chad robertson from tartine weighs in saying quote either no one's going to care or a lot of people are going to make this and it's going to push us and keep us on our toes end quote basically saying like if this thing blows up you have to let people run with it and understand that it's going to get copied a million times but then you can't rest on your laurels and you have to kind of move on and come up with the next thing you know i think that someone who's done an incredible job with that is dominique Ansel. Right, the cronut happened. Everybody copied it, but then he came up with his own new desserts. Okay, so let's pivot and talk about defending the chefs. Right, like we have to defend the people who were on the employee side, the people who contributed possibly the legwork and the the IP, the intellectual property. Cynthia Wong from Butcher and Bee says, quote, "You work your whole life to create a catalog of things that are very stylistically tied to you, so the idea that you pass them up when you leave a job is absurd." So, in leaving Butcher and Bee, she hired an attorney, whose name is Steven Sidman, and he scoffed at some of the legal language that he sees restaurants using. Quote, merely calling a dish a trade secret or work for hire doesn't make either claim legally defensible. On the flip side, he writes in an email, a chef looking for a legal protection for her best dishes faces the same problem. Quote, the best practice would require her effectively to have her treat her dish as a trade secret and take steps to protect the recipe from being revealed. He writes, in short, show no one and refuse to write anything down. Then there's this woman, uh, named, uh, Krista Chase, who says, quote, I have given myself a pep talk. I created some really cool food, delicious things here with a really great team, and I can do that again, end quote. I think that's a really interesting insight where it's like, you did this thing in your career for a time, that's a chapter, you know, we're turning the page. There's this guy named Kevin Tien, and he says, they'd still be great dishes, but I think at the end of the day, the perception would be, oh, he's just resting on his laurels. And this is talking about, you know, taking something that you did at a restaurant and then opening your own concept and then doing it at that time. And then Tian says, quote, for me, when it comes to building a dish, there are multiple recipes built into it. I'm not going to ban you from doing any of those components. As long as it's not an exact replica of the dish at this restaurant, it doesn't really matter, end quote. And so from the lawyer's perspective this the, the lawyer actually gives the advice of document everything because if you if a restaurant does take you to court and you know you come up with you know a peach dish or a way to prepare peaches and you document that entire process and then when you try to leave and say that you want to do that at your next project and the restaurant says you can't do that that's ours if you want to pursue legal action you have all this evidence showing that you did all this stuff, and that was your idea. So, again, from both camps, right, you are executing on this thing your peach dish at a restaurant where they are sticking their neck out, they are handling, bringing the audience to you, right, regardless of the press you get on the peach dish before or after you've released it. They are, you're using the product that they're paying for. You did not have to put up any financial or, you know, yes, you had to give your time to this restaurant, but you, they are taking all of the risk by giving you this platform to showcase your ideas. And I just wish that it was a little bit more uh, cut and dry, right? But it's not. It gets very muddy and very slimy. And so... Yes, I would encourage you to document as much as possible if you are the type of person that's going to get wrapped up in that, right? It's also so time-focused, right? Like, if you spend a year at a place and come up with a few ideas and then leave, you might not be all that tied to it. But if you spend six, seven, eight, nine, ten years at a place, you've probably contributed a lot to the identity of this project. So then, when you leave, you've probably done things. I talk, uh, the, the There's that quote that gets brought up every time I mention this where Thomas Keller gives the advice to Grant Ackett on like a grapefruit dish. And he says, You know that if you serve this grapefruit dish at French Laundry, you can never claim that this is your idea anymore. Like, this is my dish now because I'm the chef of the French Laundry. And you're one of my sous chefs, right? I think it's just an interesting mentality to have where it's like you want to give... In order to do well at your job, you have to give your all and you have to be creatively contributing constantly and you don't want to leave any of your good ideas. You don't want to hold yourself back because you want to see the project do well that you're working on and that's paying your bills. But then on the other hand, it's like you don't want to be held to somebody else's... You know, you don't want to be a victim of somebody else. You don't want to be making someone else famous. Or maybe you do. It's so individual. And I don't want any of you to think that it's wrong to... it. This goes back to the point about uh, Rene Redzepi and Noma and have, him having partners. Like, if you're the type of person that finds a lot of comfort in knowing that someone else is handling the numbers or the front of house or the back end or the whatever and you just want to be able to cook you might be able to get all those accolades but it might not ever be your project you know and then i think about this other i went to this pro, i went to this dinner at this place here in seattle where the chef bought the restaurant after the owner died and he's been working for the company for like decades and so it's like he eventually just lasted long enough Or, you know, just by circumstance, unfortunate circumstance, because this person passed away. Now got this ownership of this place where he probably wouldn't have otherwise. And so I would love for you to weigh in. Do you think that, you know, chefs, if they come up with that idea, it's their property? Or do you see it from the restaurant's perspective a little bit more where like they're ponying up these resources? Let me know in the comments. Let me know on Twitter. It's very interesting to me, where for the first time in a long time, we're seeing people like, I remember uh, Jenner Tomasca at Next when he was chef de cuisine there. He had like just as many followers as the restaurant. That's very interesting. That's like an unprecedented thing in our culture, where because of the way that social media is these days, when Jenner puts out a post, it gets seen by just as many people as if the restaurant would. So fascinating. Okay, last story, I promise. For some reason, it's not showing up on my desktop, but thank goodness for Notion, I have it here. There we go, it's back. So the LA Times put out a piece, Hannah Raskin was the author, and it is fascinating. And if you have any sort of interest in you know, working for a chef who is going to get a lot of media attention or someone who is going, maybe you want to own a place that participates in food festivals. It's called, quote, the Festival Industrial Complex, how food festivals hurt the chefs they're meant to help. And I want to read you a few things because I was fascinated by the numbers here. Quote, despite the increase in food festival supply, ticket prices have skyrocketed. During its first year, the Charleston Food and Wine and Food Festival sold day passes to its culinary village for $25 apiece. In 2020, five hours in the culinary village will cost $135. So they have 6 x in price. Like many food festivals, Charleston offers a slate of other events, including meals, beverage seminars, house parties, and fitness classes. The average cost of admission to a single event is $154.06. Still, chefs keep saying yes when food festivals come calling. Chefs interviewed for this story say the decision usually depends on two factors. They're anxious for potential customers, restaurant backers, or James Beard Foundation Award voters to see them. Or they want to see their food industry friends. Food festivals offer a chance for chefs to get out of their kitchens and kibitz with colleagues. Sharing some more numbers here, which is actually incredibly shocking. Quote, Austin Food and Wine Festival in 2016 reported $315,613 in revenue, according to tax records. Memphis Food and Wine collected just a little more than that at $382,000 the same year. And the kicker, the Charleston Wine Plus Food Festival took in nearly 10 times as much, reporting $3,116,921 in revenue in 2016. I don't know if that's from 2016, but they don't specify the year. $3 million in revenue. That's bonkers. Um, An interesting piece that one of the people that they interviewed um, said was, quote, you're posting pictures of this great time you're having at this mad food festival, and your community is like, you're where? Who's cooking the food here then? Customers are going, oh, that's why the cheesecake didn't taste the same. End quote. And that's an interesting point, right? Because especially if you're not getting paid to be at this festival and it's happening on a weekend, you have to weigh, oh, well, my restaurant brings in $20,000 on a Saturday and I'm getting $0 to go to this festival, but I'm going to get in front of 900 people. So how do I weigh that? You know, uh, we joke in our business when we get offered to do things for exposure sometimes, we're like, oh, well, how many exposures does it take to pay my landlord my rent because this doesn't get trans gets translated into direct dollars right but like the article says if you get in front of someone who's gonna then take you more seriously for a james beard foundation award that's gonna lead to millions of dollars for your restaurant business going forward so it's difficult to weigh and I think that this dives way deeper than I want to get to in this show because I've already gone over the time that I wanted to set aside for this episode. I highly recommend you read it, especially if you're nerdy about numbers and nerdy about this kind of state that we're in where food restaurant, food festivals seem to be growing and they are events, so they are exclusive, they encourage fear of missing out, they are exclusive They attract talent. They have media associated with them that chefs want to be a part of. Quote, there's a big misconception about festivals that chefs primarily do them for promotion. Maybe that was true 10 years ago where there was like five festivals, but the landscape has changed. Chefs often tell us they do festivals where they're treated well, end quote. And that was from Mike Thalin, who is part of Feast Portland. So I think that that was also an important thing to discuss uh there's a piece from you know my homie here in seattle eduardo jordan he says quote how many doctors speak for free how many lawyers speak for free we've got to start thinking like professionals if we want to be professionals end quote and so he's basically saying yes invite us to be a part of this but if you're bringing in three million dollars in revenue where's our cut give us an incentive to show up we are taking a risk by being here. We are leaving our bread and butter businesses behind in order to be present at this conference that you're hosting. And so I always like kind of weigh that, right? Like it's also kind of a weird flex to be a chef at a conference where it's like, yep, I have a team that is operating my business without me. But then again, people ask, if the main team is here, Who's cooking at the restaurant? And then it's also a cool flex to say like, oh, we've been doing so well. We got invited to Charlotte, Charleston, food and wine, wine and food. So we're closed right now. If you're a real fan, you'd be there partying with us. It's very interesting. I mean, and this is coming from me. I'm doing an event on Friday f- where the exposure was 400 people. Like, I'm going to feed 400 people. I'm going My food is going to be eaten by potentially 400 people or they're going to interact with the brand, right? And so how do I weigh that? You know, because we are sponsoring my time, the ingredients I'm going to purchase, right? And so, but for us, we... It's a different dynamic with this event in particular, but I always would say to people who say that they value their time that some, are you overvaluing your time? Like allow serendipity to take the wheel sometimes because you'll meet people or you'll, and you have to be able to delineate what is for exposure based on the audience that's going to be there and are you directly getting taken advantage of because someone wants to use your name to make themselves seem more do you know what i mean like it's such a fine line to ride sometimes and i i would always want people to experience a few times experience it a few times cuz oftentimes when i talk about you know doing pop-ups and operating with limited resources you aren't in a kitchen you get a prep table underneath a tent and maybe a propane grill Right? Or an outlet with an induction burner, right? And so you need to be very careful with how you make promises to people. Where you say, Well, this is getting to interact with my brand in a in a fun, festival-focused way. If you want to experience the real restaurant, come to the restaurant. I think where people get caught sometimes is they say, like, oh well, my restaurant will be at the festival. And then people it can create a false expectation and then people get upset when you don't deliver on that promise, right? Because you truly don't have the resources that you're used to executing with. So festivals are hard. I'm glad that this article was written. Um, yeah, it's just a nice way to weigh in on opinions from industry people who do this on scales that are much more involved than what I'm used to executing on. And I weigh it too, you know. But again, I don't want you to think that all festivals are bad. I just want you to be the driver of that decision. Don't feel like you have to. You know what I mean? Okay, let's wrap this up. Non-industry story. If you want to geek out on YouTube for... How long is this video? 20 minutes and watch a gentleman walk through... Spain in 4K. I highly recommend you check out a guy that I haven't recommended in a long time. Craig Adams put out a video where he's just doing hiking videos now. And there's no narration. It's just, you know, pop it up on your TV or on your laptop in full screen and just kind of sit there and watch. It's just like lots of nature, lots of eating. And you go on this journey with this person and it's really cool. And I really enjoy the films that he's making now and I respect him a lot. He's kind of found his niche. And it's just kind of Zen, like to sit and watch something that's like, yes, you see him eating these food and drinking a beer in the mountains, but it's not chef's table. And it's not about like flashy travel videos. Um, he's done a really good job. This product that I'm reaching for, I supported on Kickstarter. It's called the Switch Pod. I supported them. Um, Caleb Wojcik and Pat Flynn came out with this product that's great for vloggers and, you know, mobile content creators like me, um, it makes me want to vlog more because I have all these ideas in my head for videos that I, you know, don't want to sit down and record a full podcast on. And I have so many exciting things that are happening in my business life and I'm traveling a lot and I want to document all these things, but, um, I'm conscious of you, the audience, right? The people who are listening to my show and the stuff that I'm doing, Where I don't necessarily want to take you on a journey where you're not gonna learn anything. I don't, I mean, my life's pretty boring, right? It's a lot of meetings, it's a lot of internal conversations, it's a lot of um, things that don't necessarily pay off in the short term. I'm like building something that's gonna last for much longer. And this is kind of like, it could be seen as boring. Um, And I do document it in the way of like when it's a funny moment or like something cool happens, I document it for myself and I don't really share it all that often. But I know that if I were to share this time in my life down the road, it would be fun to look at, look back at. And so I got this product, not because I, uh, most of you have seen probably the road trip, uh, thing that I took where my Joby gorilla pod broke on day one. It was like 10 hours into the road trip. The Joby gorilla pod broke. And so I wanted to support these guys because they seem to be doing a fun and interesting alternative to that, you know, shitty product. And it's great. I've shot a few videos with it already when I was doing projects for clients. Um, and I enjoyed using it. It definitely is a first version a one of a product. And the version 2 is going to be even better. Um, but I'm also just fascinated to see how they went about marketing it. And how they partner with a lot of creators and people in the industry. And hook them up and encouraged them. They made it for these people. And then they did incredible marketing to get this Kickstarter funded. And I bought one because it fulfilled a need that I have. And that's like almost all the products. When I review products on YouTube, I look at what is the obvious improvement that could be made on something that seems to be an industry standard. All on my apron. So I learn a lot from these projects and seeing how they get fulfilled and how they communicate with their backers and all these things. And so it's a product that, that I'm enjoying, and I hope that it, it can be a tool that I use to create more for you folks. That's basically that piece. Um, yeah, I don't know if I have any other updates to share. Going to Vegas this weekend. Going to Norway next month. What else? I hope you have a very safe Halloween if that hasn't already happened by the time this episode, by the time this episode airs. Um, yeah, sorry if this was a little long. Give me a shout-out if you are still hanging out here and you really enjoy these longer episodes because I don't like these to go this long, but this was one where I there was a lot of stuff that I needed to dig into, and I'm enjoying being able to articulate my thoughts on these things in a longer format because I don't want to get caught up with sharing quips, because that can frequently be taken out of context, and I don't want that. And I also like the conversation sometimes. So, thanks to everybody on Patreon that continues to support the content that I do. Thanks for sitting here and watching the sun go down. It's very dark in here now. Okay, roll the outro. We did it. You're in outro land now. Thank you so much. I appreciate your ears more than you'll ever know. Hey, by making it to the end, you're the type of person that I want to speak to directly. This little production is constantly growing. If you enjoyed this episode, if you like what I'm trying to do with this show and want to make sure more people can find us, a free way to help out that takes less than three minutes is to leave The Emulsion a great review on iTunes. If you didn't enjoy this show, please also leave a review. I'm happy to take any constructive feedback you've got. If you want to learn more about supporting this show with your hard-earned cash, patreon.com slash justinkana is the place to do that. That. I've got tiers starting at just $1 per month. Let's say you just like being involved through suggesting stories to be covered or asking questions to my interview guests. You can stay up to date by following along on Twitter or Instagram. That is linked up in the description for your convenience or always available on justinconnor.com. If you're on YouTube and listening, you can take this show on the go because this is available on all podcast platforms, including Spotify. And if you prefer video versions of things like my interview shows or the shorter intermezzo episodes and you're listening audio only, please check out my YouTube channel to see more of that. Now as Normally, where I'd say my name is Justin Kana, and I hope you have a good one. But you've probably got another podcast episode to listen to, so I'm just gonna get out of the out of the way here. Excuse, Excuse me, pardon me.